Hello and welcome to Cambridge Geopolitics Conversations and to this podcast series on resistance, radicalisation and religion, where we'll be looking at division and extremism in different parts of the world, in different contexts and times. I'm Suzanne Rain and I'm joined today by Sarah Khan, who has been until recently the lead commissioner at the UK's Commission for Countering Extremism, a post she held since January 2018, and she has just been appointed the Prime Minister's Advisor on Social Resilience and Cohesion. Before that, Sarah was director of Inspire, an organisation she co-founded in 2008 to challenge gender inequality and Islamist extremism. And in 2016, she authored the book, The Battle for British Islam, Reclaiming Muslim Identity from Extremism. On 24th of February this year, the Commission published their report entitled Operating with Impunity, examining the effectiveness of existing legislation on hateful extremism. Sarah, it's, it's great to have you with us. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Can I start, Sarah, by going straight in there with, with a question about hateful extremism? Obviously, the word extremism isn't enough. So you've had to add or create this concept of hateful extremism to, to describe, I think, the problem that you're trying to address How do you define it? What's the distinction and why is it such a problem? I think when I started this role, one thing that really concerned me, well, I guess two things that really concerned me was was that on the one hand, you know, as a society, the the debate about extremism is is very polarised. It's quite angry. It's quite divisive. You know, on the one hand, you have people who are very concerned about how civil liberties could be undermined because of counter-extremism measures. I mean, we've seen how in other countries, particularly authoritarian states, they use the language of counter-extremism and counter-terrorism to curtail legitimate dissent and civil liberties. Yet on the other hand, I, I saw how there was an increasing awareness amongst politicians, policymakers, the media, for the need for counter-extremism, because we are seeing rising levels of, of extremism across society. We only need to look at the issue around social media platforms, for example. We only need to see what's been happening in other countries, including the US and, and other European countries. And I think For me, trying to square that circle where we need to focus in on what we mean by extremism, but also protect civil liberties was a key issue for me. And that's where we looked at the issue around hateful extremism. Now, many people will remember that the phrase nonviolent extremism, which many people continue to use, trying to distinguish it from from violent extremism. And that was a phrase I never actually ever really liked because it almost... It almost sounded as an oxymoron to me that it's passive, it's not dangerous, um, there's nothing serious that we should we should worry about it. But actually, trying to define what we're talking about as hateful extremism ha- was was really critical. And the reason why we thought the word hateful was was important was was for two reasons. The first is is that look at the end of the day. The E word will always be misused, exploited by a whole range of actors, including politicians, I have to say. And and we've all seen that happen over time. So I don't think anyone's ever going to be able to control the meaning of of, of the E word as a whole. However, the second point I would say is, is that it is quite clear that there are, for example, far right groups, Islamist groups, um, far left groups and others 
who are engaging in hatred of the other. You know, they are targeting a group of people, an outgroup, who they see as a threat to the well-being, success or survival of them. And they are engaging in inciting hatred against them. They are making the moral case for violence against those people. And that, that to me, sits just outside of terrorism. But at the core of that is this idea of hatred towards the other, the dehumanisation of other human beings. And I think focusing on that as a real genuine threat and calling it hateful extremism helps us to focus minds on this very, very real phenomenon that many of our, many countries across the world are experiencing, but then distinguishing it from the general over to, overuse of the term extremism that we are seeing in everyday discourse. So in our report, we've defined hateful extremism as activity or materials which are directed at an outgroup who are perceived as a threat to an in-group, which is motivated by or intending to advance a political, religious or racial supremacist ideology, which is creating a climate conducive to hate crime, terrorism or other violence, or is attempting to erode and destroy the fundamental rights and freedoms of our democratic society as protected under Article 17 of Schedule 1 to the Human Rights Act 1998. Now, this isn't a legal definition, just to be clear. This is the Commission's own working definition. And some of your listeners may not be aware, but the British government proposed a definition of extremism a couple of years ago. And our research showed that that did not have wide support. And that definition was something along the lines of vocal or active opposition to fundamental shared values, which include democracy, the rule of law, and so on. Now, no one's going to argue that, oh, democracy and the rule of law are bad things. But as a kind of, as a definition... Well, there's lots of things that are wrong with it. It's far too broad and it's quite ambiguous. I remember a lot of free speech activists and conservative faith leaders were very concerned that that definition could capture them, which would just be unacceptable in a democracy, in a, in a liberal democracy. And of course, this definition, while it's, it sounds great in terms of political rhetoric, it's certainly not operational. And so I suppose what our definition has tried to do is be much more narrower on the most dangerous and harmful activity that we're seeing in our country. And it's far more focused, which I believe will help the government and practitioners in responding to, to hateful extremism. And what we also show in our definition is that actually it's it's embedded in this idea of Article 17 of the Human Rights Act. So it's already embedded in, in existing legislation, which I think is actually really, really important. I want to dig into what is the role and the place of the law within this discussion about extremism and, and different forms. And one of the things that you drew out in your report really clearly is this glaring loophole where you could probably explain it better than I can, but but it's, you know, it is okay, essentially, to glorify terrorism as long as you're not encouraging it. Is that is that's correct? So, so there's, a, there's a whole tranche of activity which you would think, looking at it, this can't be allowed. And yet, in the current legislation, this is allowed. But the flip side question is, should we be trying to deal with this through legislation at all? So, I mean, yes, when, when we started the legal review, I have to say, I didn't know what to expect when concluded our, our findings. And I was really shocked you know, bearing in mind that Britain has very robust counter-terrorism legislation in this country, we've made terrorism illegal, clearly. We've made hate crime uh, an illegal activity in this country. Um, and we have pretty robust public order offences and hate crime laws. Yet despite all of that, the thing that struck us um, when we were carrying out this, this review, we, we did this review from very much an operational perspective, was that there are certainly gaps in the law in the sense that 
hate crime and terrorism are two very distinct types of activity. And hateful extremism, as we've defined in that report, is a distinct activity in its own right. And when people were drafting legislation around terrorism and, and hate crime, they were never drafting it with the mind of tackling what we have described as, as hateful extremism. And so what you find is that there are, there are gaps. And you're right to point out, for example, that in this country, it is currently lawful to glorify terrorists and acts of terrorism as long as you're not encouraging emulation, as long as you're not encouraging the instigation of preparation or commission of acts of terrorism. So if I wanted to, for example, go out tomorrow and start saying how wonderful Brenton Tarrant is and how wonderful what Brenton Tarrant did when he murdered 51 Muslims in Christchurch in New Zealand, that will be okay in this country as long as I'm not encouraging emulation. And so Mark Rowley, who I appointed to, to lead the legal review, who was the former head of counterterrorism operations at the Metropolitan Police. I mean, even he, who has clearly worked in the area of counterterrorism, even he was shocked at these kinds of gaps in the law. And you know, that particular example is where I see time and time again, far-right extremist groups, Islamist extremist groups and others, praising and glorifying terrorists. Now, even if you're not encouraging emulation, you're certainly creating a climate that's conducive to it. And again, that's what we would describe as a hateful extremist activity. Other gaps in the law, more on the, I suppose, on the, on the hate crime side, is that if I wanted to, for example, deliberately incite hatred against Jews or against Muslims, for example, it is lawful for me to do that in the UK as long as it's not threatening, abusive or insulting. So, for example, if I wanted to set up a neo-Nazi group tomorrow and incite her hatred against Jews, perhaps using conspiracy theories, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, or glorify Robert Bowles, who carried out the attack at Pittsburgh. Again, that would be legal as long as it's not threatening, abusive, insulting. And again, I, throughout my role as commissioner, I have seen really dangerous, shocking examples of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, some of which have been viewed millions of times. And there's no legislation to deal with that. And again, this is what we mean by hateful extremism. And I suppose if you imagine three circles, if you imagine the terrorism bubble on the right and you've got a hate crime bubble on the left, the bubble in between is hateful extremism. And our argument is both the bubbles on the left and the right, hate crime and terrorism, have been made illegal. But the activity of hateful extremism, which sits in the middle, is currently legal. And that's the gap that we're calling on the government, that they have to close. And we're calling on the government to commit to devising a new legal and operational framework to tackle this very specific activity and harm of hateful extremism. And that's really clear and, and it's a really helpful description of essentially where things fall between duels. And you've said as well that hateful extremism demands a response and acknowledged how difficult this is because because debates become polarised and then and then tangled up in all sorts of questions about freedom of expression and civil liberties. And, and that's the challenge, isn't it? Because you've campaigned consistently against extremism precisely because it seeks to restrict individual liberties and human rights. And so so the problem we've all got is extremism is restricting liberties, but in order to counter extremism, somehow we have to restrict the liberties of the extremists. Do you think this can be legislated out of, or, or actually is this something where there needs to be a more or a parallel societal response to dealing with the problem? So, I mean, I would say that, and I've made this very clear throughout my time as commissioner, is, is that you, you can't just rely on legal means to tackle extremism. You know, you, you require legal and non-legal interventions. And, and so if you look at our report from 2019, the Challenging Hateful Extremism Report, that entire report was not focused on having a legal framework at all. It was looking at what does a whole society response 
to extremism actually look like? What is the role of social media companies? What should a national government policy on counter-extremism look like? What is the role of civil society groups, faith leaders? Fundamentally, my view is you have to have both illegal and non-legal interventions to tackle extremism because our response to dealing with a persistent hateful extremist organisation in this country, for example, who are radicalising young people, who are very good at propagating their, their propaganda, is very different to dealing with a 15-year-old who has who is vulnerable to extremist ideologies, who has been targeted. It's a very different approach, and you, would, you need to use the right tool to deal with the right people. So you have to have a combination of, of both. Now, one of the things that I've made very clear in, in our 2019 report is the importance of having a human rights approach to tackling extremism. And you know, my background, as you mentioned, is counter-extremism, but it's also human rights. I mean, I, I, I've did a master's in human rights. I've spent part of my organisation inspire. That's what we did. We looked at this through the lens of human rights as well. And I think the thing that struck me was how you see this symbiotic relationship between extremism and human rights. When extremists come into power, one of the first things they do is curtail, restrict the human rights of other people, whether it's women, people from other sexualities or, or other minorities and so forth. At the same time, when you see societies restrict the legitimate rights of other people and the human rights of other people, that breeds a culture of extremism. So the two are very much symbiotic, are, are connected. And I suppose what, what I'd say is, is that it is possible, and I think what the Commission's work has shown over the last three years is, it is possible to curtail the dangerous activity of, of hateful extremism, but at the same time have a very high bar to ensure that you are protecting the human rights and civil liberties of, of, of other people. And that includes extremists. That's not to say that extremists don't have human rights. Of course they do. But what we're saying is, is that in a democracy, and as we make clear in our, in our legal review, if you look at, for example, Article 17 of, of the European Convention of Human Rights, which we've incorporated into the UK Human Rights Act, it makes it very clear that democracies have in Article 17 a robust tool which allows them to protect itself from extremist ideology. So if you have extremist groups who are using human rights to denigrate the rights of other people, that's not acceptable under human rights law. Um, and that's what we're seeing extremist groups do all the time. And again, I think this is something that liberal democracy should really embrace because it charts a path for us to take, which allows us to recognise that, look, democracies are under threat. We, we, we recognise they're robust and they're, they're important. But let's not be under any illusion that extremists aren't seeking to undermine and weaken our, our democracy and our, and our human rights. And so there has to be provision for us to protect the very values that define us as a nation. And that's what um, my work over the last three years at the Commission has tried to show. I'm just thinking about about how extremists, what you were saying there about how extremists are using the language of human rights to essentially enable their continued extremist activity, but also the sort of recruitment and radicalising that they're, that they're doing. And that's that, of course, is, is creating real tensions within communities, is fracturing communities, which you could argue is their purpose. And it makes it very difficult to stand up to them. How do you think that societies might build strength against extremism? And, and I kind of, if I might allow myself an extra question, how do we... There are some things which it feels we can't even talk about because you're going to offend somebody in some way that you don't necessarily understand. So so where do we start even with this? So you're, you're absolutely right, Suzanne. You know, we see, for example, in the UK, um, groups which, I mean, the, the English Defence League, which I have to say is a shadow of its former self now, 
But at its heyday, it was very much using the language of human rights to try and suggest that we need to um, it to justify its hatred against Muslims, for example. You see um, Islamist groups, and I see this all the time in the UK, Islamist groups who are using the language and the narrative of anti-racism, where they say that if you speak out about Islamist extremism, you are a racist, you're an Islamophobe. So you can see how extremists are using the language of anti-racism, human rights, to, to try and effect shut down debates. But it's not just about shutting down debate. What they're trying to do is to break over the cordon sanitaire, I suppose, in our society where, you know, normally these are things that we as a society feel quite passionate about. We care, obviously, about anti-racism. We care about human rights. And again, what extremist groups are doing is trying to mainstream their narrative and recruit people from the mainstream. So it's a very effective target. I think what you see is, is that, and this is really important where research analysis of, of extremist groups is, is critical, because what you see is, a pattern of certain groups, certain behaviour. It's not people who say this is a one-off. It's a persistent pattern of activity and behaviour. And when you see certain far-right groups, Muslim groups engage in this, it becomes quite obvious who they are, what they're doing, and what it is they're seeking to achieve as well. So it's not impossible to, to, to navigate that field once you know who the key players are. And I think that's why mapping out extremist groups in, in your own country, respective countries, is, is really critical and being very aware of the type of activity they're engaging in. On your second point about offence, I mean, this is such a big issue in, in the UK at the moment. And, you know, I, I think it's really important to remember that there is no right not to be offended. I mean, we live in an incredibly diverse democracy in this country. You know, we, I have to say, I think Britain probably is one of the most successful, plural, inclusive countries in the world. We have, in, you know, we have so much diversity in terms of different religions, different cultures, different political beliefs. You know, it is a great, it is a great melting pot. But to some degree, if we all started being offensive about everything that we all care about and we started protesting and, and engaging in activity that would undermine social cohesion, there'd be anarchy in our country. And so I think we all have to learn to live with offence because there is no right not to be offended. You know, it's something that I may find offensive, you may not, Suzanne, and vice versa. And I'm sure like like me, you know, you wake up every morning and there, there are things throughout the entire day that you find offensive by the time you've gone to bed. And again, it's, 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 and this is where I think the law is quite important and recognising that if we, if we are going to protest all the time, we, society just would simply not function and it would undermine social cohesion and the diversity and richness of our country would just simply not last. And so we have to recognise that, look, if we've got concerns, how do we deal with issues that we feel very strongly about in a way that will preserve social cohesion. Of course, we want passionate debate and discussions and we can even shout at each other. And, and that's what democracy allows. But I think there is a way of doing that without undermining social cohesion. What you see extremists do is engage in misinformation, intentionally whip up when there's local tensions, either at a, at a, at a local level or at a national level. So if you think of, of the COVID crisis, for example, you time it against the extremists, exploiting those crises or times of tension to whip up hatred, to undermine social cohesion, to feed division and to breed hatred. And so the rest of us have to be very careful not to find ourselves going down that rabbit hole because we know what extremists are seeking to do. They're seeking to undermine social cohesion. We want to do the opposite. We want to preserve it. And so there are lots of different ways and opportunities you can do that through conflict resolution and building bridges and having robust and, and respectful debates at the same time. And so this is something that, you know, I'd be quite keen to look at in my in my new role. And that's, it's a great time to be starting your new role because 
because we know that the problem is there. And something, again, that you've spoken really powerfully about is the difficulty of challenging extremism. And what you were talking about just then is it's about the, the role of local communities, essentially in, in building their own resilience so that they're not vulnerable to the extremism. That's really hard to do, isn't it? Because it's, it's very difficult to be the person who stands up often feeling quite alone. How do you think the government, maybe society, how can, how can it help people to stand up to extremists when they are within their community? I mean, this is, this is such a critical point, I think. I mean, I've, I've as, as you know, the former commissioner, I've travelled up and down the country. I've spoken to thousands of, of people. And you know, people who've told me just incredible stories of how they have stood up against extremists in their own own area, not because they had a, there was a duty on them to do it, because they had to, because they knew it mattered. They knew that their voices mattered in speaking out. Because silence is just not an answer to to, to extremism. It, it's so vital to to speak out and to shape the discourse and to show that there is pushback. Because what extremists want is to control the narrative and say. This is what everybody thinks and this we're right about this. And so those counter voices are so critical. And I guess, you know, what's what I've realised, though, is, is how much support are those people who are standing up to extremism receiving? You know, I've spoken to many teachers over the years. I've spoken to counsellors. I've spoken to civil society groups. And often they tell me they feel alone, even when they are prepared to stand up and, and, and in effect, then get abuse from extremists. They have felt threatened. They felt abused. And I guess... There's two things here is, is are we giving enough support to those people who are willing to stand up to extremism? And I have to say that also includes mainstream institutions, public bodies and others as well. Are we giving them enough support? But at the same time, are they using the right levers to tackle this problem as well? Because if our mainstream institutions um, are caving into the demands of extremists, for example, I'm afraid we're just chipping away at our our, our values and our rights and, and our democracy to a certain extent, a very slow, gradual erosion. But at the same time, we also have to develop ways of providing support to those who are willing to do it. And unfortunately, you know, at the moment, that we're just not there yet. I mean, we, we the Commission carried out a poll in 2019, which showed around 78% of people who do counter-extremism work are receiving abuse, threats and intimidation. And some of the stories I heard were absolutely shocking and and no one should have to experience that level of abuse for in effect standing up for for our values for for protecting social cohesion for standing up to extremists so we have to do more and I was pleased to see that the government say that they were going to do more to try and protect counter extremists from abuse and intimidation and that's something I'm very keen to kind of look at in my new role as well. And I think I mean those figures are truly awful really because because when what they are is just the indication of how powerful the extremists are and how difficult it is as an individual to make the life choice to say, I feel strongly enough about this that I'm prepared to go through all the stuff that's going to get thrown at me. And I think the other statistic that you had was just over half of those who experienced abuse, having stood up to extremists, saying that it made them apprehensive about speaking up in public, including on on social media again. And I think one of the points that you've made again very powerfully is that how little this aspect of it is understood. And, and you yourself have, have obviously had to go through that process yourself in, in, while you were running Inspire, where they sort of turned on you, I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, some of the, the findings from the poll showed, again, that people were 
being ostracized from their communities, how it was, you know, how their families were being targeted as a result. And that's really shocking. This is not a normal nine to five job where you could just switch off and you go home and I don't know, watch Bake Off, for example. It's um, it, 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 people live with it. And I've certainly, you know, I've certainly lived with it as well. You know, throughout my time at, at, at Inspire, um, as, as the Counter Extremism Commissioner, it, it you you get targeted by the far right, the far left Islamist extremists, and it is it is pretty vile. I mean, I've had death threats, you know, rape threats, um, all sorts of things. People threatening to assassinate me because of my willingness to stand up and speak out against extremism. I mean, I've had it from, like I said, all, all three of those groups, but the worst would, I would argue, very much has been the Islamist extremists in this in the UK. There, the abuse from them has undoubtedly been the worst. But I think, in, you know, at the same time for me, although there have been times when I thought, God, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Why should I do this? Someone else can do this. I'm not going to do it. But I have to say that the, the, I found that the more abuse I was getting, the more it just annoyed me. And I thought, no, I'm not going to allow you to stop me from speaking out against extremists. Because, I mean, obviously being a, a woman, an Asian Muslim woman as well, inevitably they people, extremists think you're an easy target. And I think if, if you know, if you've ever had a chat with my husband, he'll tell you just how stubborn and, and resilient I am. And the more abuse I, I got, the more I felt like, no, damn it, I'm going to stand up. You're not going to silence me because that's exactly what you would like. And I refuse point blank for you to dictate to me how I'm going to live my life, how I'm going to uh, speak out about extremism. I, I refuse to allow that. And I think so in one sense, I think, you know, I thank the extremes for the abuse they've given me because it's given me a thick skin and it's actually just made me even more resilient and committed to the committed to the cause of countering extremism. That's fascinating and, and awfully poignant because not everyone is as brave as you. And you made me think about some of the awful reports that have, well, the, the things that have been happening in Afghanistan over the last few months, which is a series of, of assassinations of women, women judges, women journalists, who are simply trying to live the lives that they want to live. And the every one of them is taking a personal decision to do something because they feel it's the right thing to do. And, and it brings with it huge risk. So it, it's, you are a rare example of somebody who is brave enough to stand up for that. If I might say also, you're an example of of the phenomenon of the more difficult people make things for you, the more resolved you are to do them, and and that's of course one of the one of the things that we see on the other side as well. So with with Islamist terrorists, you know they they're not changing their minds just because it's illegal. They're being arrested. You know they they just feel it more strongly when they're in prison. And and I suppose you do have this sense that even though even though the conversation is going on, it's really hard to change people's minds. I mean, on the issue of Afghanistan, I mean, I've, I look at so many women in, in Middle Eastern countries or in countries like Pakistan and, and other countries who, you know, I, I can't even compare myself to them and what they're experiencing and what they've had to go through and the, and the freed, the for, you know, the, the fortunate situation I find myself in, in terms of the freedoms and rights that I have to live in a, in a Western liberal democracy, and the struggles that those women are experiencing, and how they are targeted by Islamist extremists. Of course, as you mentioned, you know, people, women politicians who have been blown up, they've had bombs put underneath their cars just for being a, just for fighting for the rights that I am fortunate enough to live and, and, and for you to, to enjoy and, and practice and. I think many people would find it strange that why why are you Suzanne and Sarah talking about 
your experiences here and, and comparing it to Afghanistan. But I think there is a comparison. Yes, I mean, Muslim women in this country who are doing counter-extremism work are not being blown up. But it's I think there's a failure in, in recognising and understanding how Islamist extremist groups in this country will absolutely target Muslim women who are brave enough to stand up to extremism. And I think there is a failure in our mainstream institutions to recognise that. I don't think we have a very good understanding about <clears throat> minority communities. I still think we paint a very monolithic image. and we, we have not mapped out, for example, the diverse Muslim communities in this country, the voices, the different ideological sects, for example, but also a failure to actually stand up and support Muslim women who are being targeted by Islamist extremists. I mean, if, if Muslim women, uh, like myself, for example, who've experienced rape threats, threats of being assassinated, pronouncements of takfir against me, uh, claims that I'm an apostate, and we don't recognise, or, or our mainstream institutions don't understand or recognise that are failing, whether it's the criminal justice system, community policing, our mainstream institutions. I mean, unfortunately, there have been times when I've seen our public bodies support my perpetrators and have uh, attacked me and accused me of not knowing my place and, and, and having whipped up. And I, I'm, I'm responsible for the abuse that's directed at me because I've spoken out against Islamist extremism. Now, if our mainstream institutions are supporting perpetrators rather than the victims, there is something inherently wrong. And again, this is something I'm, I'm quite keen to understand and explore because it's not just Muslim women. I mean, I've spoken to Sikh women, Sikh activists, uh, other women, Jew Jewish women, who are being targeted by extremists from within their own faith or their own community and background. And we simply are, A, have little understanding of this issue, and B, we're very nervous to talk about it because we don't want to offend. And that is fundamentally, I think, just at odds with protecting women's rights, protecting individual liberty, standing up for the rights and freedoms that Britain is about. And that has to that has to change. Sarah, thank you. That's... Um... I think that's a really powerful note to end on. I was struck by your phrase that silence is not an answer. And um, I think with you as the Prime Minister's advisor on social resilience and cohesion, I expect you to be taking that forward and making sure that silence is, is not an answer for any of us. But it's been terrific to have you with us. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks very much, Suzanne. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Cambridge Geopolitics Conversations. You can find the Centre for Geopolitics on Twitter at @camgeopolitics, and all our events are advertised online on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk. <laughs>